And open your Bible to Job chapter 1. And while you're doing that, I wanted to just take a moment just to introduce myself to you if I haven't met you before. My name is John, and my family and I have, that's my wife Anna and our three kids, we've been privileged to be a part of Redemption for almost nine years now. Um, Hard to believe it's gone by so fast, but it's been an incredible joy to be part of this church community and to be ministered to you by, well, to, to be, have been ministered by you um, and so many of you for so many years. And I know I speak on behalf of you when I say that we are very grateful for Pastor Ian, who's been such a, a faithful steward of God's Word over the years, and we just trust for many more years of fruitfulness in his life. And... Um, certainly, I think of others who have served us so well from this pulpit. I think of Pastor Brian and, and Mark and, and Miles and Rowan. Um, and so I, I consider it just a real honor to be able to open up the Word of God with you today. And not just for those reasons, but above all, above all because of really the task of proclaiming God's truth. This afternoon, I want to address the subject of what it means to be enduring well, particularly in the midst of the trials of life. I know the past two years has been extremely trying for all of us on multiple levels. In addition to the day-to-day challenges that we experience normally, I feel like it's all just been compounded. And I want to be sensitive to the fact that I, I would imagine that in a room this size, there are many of us who are still in the thick of it right now. And you may have questions pertaining to, to suffering and evil and God's testing work in our lives, and I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to know the answers to them. I just hope that the passage that we're going to be looking at is going to encourage your heart. It may give clarity on the subject. That it might challenge our thinking a little bit, but at the end of it all, I want to give you hope. I want to give us all hope. To have our, our gaze fixed on the God who knows and cares and, and controls all things. I was speaking to a friend of mine recently, who's probably in his late 50s, early 60s, one who's mature in the faith. And I hadn't seen him for quite some time, and he, he looked a lot weaker than the times I had seen him in the past, so I just asked him, how you doing? Everything okay? And he was saying that he had a, a big setback in his health, hospitalized for an extended period of time. And then he said these words. He said, John, it was the greatest, one of the greatest spiritual training grounds I had yet to experience in my life. I wouldn't have traded it for, for anything in the world. And the question on my mind at the time, and even for this afternoon is how do you get to that point? When you can embrace trials in exchange for comfort because you know it is one of God's means of maturing us in the faith. How do you get to that point? Because let's be honest, and really I see this in my own heart and my own tendencies, we often have this fear of ever falling into a trial or when I'm found in the trial itself, I'm just trying to escape it. Because we see it as nothing more than this meaningless interruption upon my life as if, how could God be disrupting me this way? 
And we're tempted to say things like, God, get me out of this, when in fact what we should be saying is, Lord, teach me through this. Which is really what God is looking to do because He is so purposeful in all that He does. And as we consider Job, I don't know of a single person in in human history who experienced so much suffering in so little time. Nobody. And yet I also know and have learned, even in the time that I've spent preparing for this, that Job's life is so relevant in understanding how to endure well. Regardless of the degree in which you and I will ever suffer, whether in much or in little. And I want to begin our time together by reading the trial itself. To have that set before us before we unpack the rest of this chapter. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons, speaking about Job, and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. We're going to stop there for now. This is the trial. And it is, it is within minutes that Job's life, after experiencing what some may want to call the pinnacle of prosperity, he's now become virtually bankrupt. Four messengers entered his house on four separate occasions to inform Job of unbelievable disasters to his life. All his oxen and donkeys were taken, and the servants were struck down by enemies. Fire fell from heaven and consumed all his sheep as well as all the servants of the sheep. Enemies raided and took all his camels and then killed the servants. And we're talking about over 10,000 animals in his possession. In an instant, they're either taken or they're killed. He doesn't even have time to process one disaster before he's informed of the next one. I like how one author comments on this. He says, Perhaps he began to rise as each of the messengers neared the end of their tale, only to be nailed back to his seat by the onset of the next report of disaster. It's just one after the other. But the hardest of them was when the messenger arrived and reported that his ten precious children were eating one of the homes and a powerful wind struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed and they're all dead. And he is left alone with his wife and the four messengers who broke the news to him. There are no adequate words for something like this. But I also don't know what's more shocking. 
what just happened to Job or Job's response to what just happened to him. His livestock is gone, his servants and his kids are dead, and Job is left alone, and what does he do? In a very unremarkable way, he gets up, he tears his clothes, he shaves his head, he gets on the ground, and begins to worship. And as we're reading this, we must conclude one of two things about Job. Either Job is just completely out of his right mind, or or his God must be of infinite value to compel him to do what he just did after what just happened to him, after he is left virtually bare of everything he owned. We have to conclude one of those. We can't be neutral about this kind of response. But we know the truth because the testimony of God's word says of him in in verse 22 that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with, with wrong. That's an incredible statement. As soon as you become shocked over something that happens in the story, something else is said that is even more shocking, and it's now this verse, that Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So what you mean to say is that he didn't complain, he didn't get angry, he he didn't become bitter or resentful, he didn't become impatient, he didn't worry. Up until this point, in the midst of this trial, he did not sin against the Lord. And the question that you and I are asking is how? How is it possible that someone could endure all that and do so without sinning? And you and I are asking this question because you know how quickly it happens in our life. We, we, we experience temptation every day. And, and, and so often it is the smallest things that ignite our flesh. But I also know that if you're a follower of Christ, your desire is to have this said of you. If you love Jesus Christ, you want this to be said, that as you go through a season of God's testing work in your life, that you can look back and say, I did not sin against the Lord. I didn't charge him with wrong. We want to be able to endure well, and, and enduring well means that we submit to God and not to our flesh, but the question is, how do we get there? How do we get to that point? How can we live our lives so that this could be said of me? And and I want to give you two truths that will equip us to endure well from this very chapter. And the first one is this. We need to be humbled by the holiness of God. We need to cultivate humility in light of God's holiness. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East." His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. 
For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. The author begins this chapter by describing Job in three ways. And and verses 2 and 3 mention two of them, that he's both fruitful and he's successful. And, And it begins by speaking about his family. And obviously there's something to be said about having that many children. Ten kids, seven of whom were sons. At the end of the book of Ruth, certain women are blessing the Lord for the birth of Ruth's child. And then they turn to Naomi, which is her mother-in-law, and they say that Ruth's love for her is better than seven sons. So the culture would have seen that really as a symbol of, of completeness. And then you add on top of that three daughters, and, and like one author said, they were just regarded as having an ideal family. Blessed to the Lord. One reason why he's considered to be the greatest in the East. He's fruitful, but secondly, he's successful, and we're told that he owns upwards to 11,000 animals. And really, to put this into perspective, a sheep may cost about $300 to buy. He owns 7,000. Camels start at about 5,000, but they can sell for as high as $20,000. He owned a measly 3,000 of them. Consider the amount of land Job must have owned, and he obviously wasn't the one who took care of them. The text says that he had a very great amount of servants working in in the field. There's really no other way to put this. Job is just rich. He's very rich. And you would think that a man with this type of stature, who's so fruitful and successful, that he would have every reason to boast in himself. But we get a sense that Job knew that everything around him was a, was a result of God's goodness and generosity and not because he earned it or he deserved it. In, in chapter 2, verse 10, he actually mentions to his wife that everything they have, both good and evil, is a gift from God. Everything that we would say Job owned was given to him by God and he knew it. But not only did he see it as God's gift, he knew that everything belonged to God anyway. Which is why he could say, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken. It's his. I don't have the rights over it. It's not mine. He believed what God would actually say to him later on in chapter 41, that everything under the heaven is mine. He believed that to be true. And I think if we are to live humbly, we need to firstly start growing gratitude rather than living our life as if we're entitled over the very things that God has put into our possession. And I don't think really the language that we use today helps us in that regard because we talk about my house and my car and my money and, and my kids and you know, I, I get what people mean by, by that, but the reality is it's not mine, it's not yours, it's His. It all belongs to him. He owns it all. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And Job knew it. He believed it and he lived like it. Even our our very life depends on on the very breath that he gives us to live and to move and, and to have our being. And so if we believe that, if we honestly believe that, when God then 
chooses to take back from us what already belongs to him, our only response is gratitude because we've been able to taste of his generosity. Otherwise, we just end up treating God as if he's, he's just stealing from us. Job lived his life humbly with an open hand, knowing that anything could taken, be taken from him at any time. And that's why he could say, naked I came into this world, naked I'll return. I'm grateful for anything he gives me. I don't have the rights over it. And this is giving us a greater understanding as to why God considered him the greatest man on the earth, as he's described later on. Because bracketing this section of Scripture that deals with his success and fruitfulness are two sections that highlight Job's character. In verse 1, the author describes him as blameless and upright and, and fearing God and one who turns away from evil. Just a model of godly character. An all-encompassing picture of righteous living. If we are to live humbly before the Lord like Job, we need to be growing in gratitude. But secondly, we need to be running after righteousness. It says that Job was blameless and upright. And obviously it does not mean sinless, but that he relentlessly pursued godliness. So some people live their life as if godliness is all of a sudden just going to appear in their life. It's not going to happen. We need to be shaped by the word. We need to fight to be in prayer. We need to fight to be around God's people even when we do pray. We need to make sacrifices for those things that God promises will work towards our greater good of humility and holiness. It's really a war. I know that Christians around the globe today have been fighting a lot of battles, but I just don't think there's enough being said and done concerning the battle for our holiness. We need to be known as a people who fight that battle. Because notice that it doesn't just stop at what he pursues, but also what he puts to death in his life and that sin. He's actively involved in slaying sin. He's described as fearing God and, and turning away from evil. And then if you drop down to verse 4, Job would act as a priest. And he'd offer a sacrifice on behalf of his children because perhaps there were sins of the heart that weren't apparent, but they, they required atonement. We can say that this man had such a sensitive conscience to sin. Not only for his own spiritual health, but also for those who are closest to him, his own children. And, and I think we need to be praying that God would raise up, right even here among us, generations of fathers and mothers and anyone who's entrusted with children to teach kids the effects of sin and then quickly point them to the cross where an atonement was made. The sense that we get from our text about Job is that there was a swiftness in dealing with sin. Look at the end of verse 5. Thus Job did continually. I don't know what you're being enticed with today. Whether it's the fight against sexual sin, whether it's anger against authority, whether it's ungodly fear about anything, 
You need to cut off those paths of temptation and be running to God and earnestly seeking him for repentance. And I can't also say enough about just being around people who are going to hold you to a standard of godly integrity. We need to take drastic and immediate measures in our life if we desired to put sin to to death. Because let me say this, if our conscience is unmoved as we engage in sin, and if we want to do nothing about it, then the question is, how can we claim to fear God? The book of Proverbs links these two ideas as being inseparable. Fearing God and turning from evil, which is what we see there at the end of verse 1. In Proverbs, it'll be up on the screen here, Proverbs 3, verse 7, it says, Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. Proverbs 16, verse 6, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. You want to know if you fear God? Ask yourself this question. Do you turn away from evil? In fact, Proverbs 8, verse 13, goes as far as to say that the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. You can't separate them. And I just want to pause for just a second and illustrate a scenario that Many people find themselves in today. Those who say that they fear God, that they humbly reverence Him, and yet they pursue the very things that God hates and forbids. They live their life in this constant pattern of sinfulness with no sign of repentance or the evidence of the Holy Spirit, and yet they claim to fear God. And if you find yourself in that category today, I want to gently but truthfully tell you that on the authority of God's word, you don't fear God. You don't know him. God does not dwell in you if there's absolutely no resemblance between you and him. God hates sin. We must hate sin and turn from it. 1 John 1 verse 6 says that if we say that we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we what? We lie and do not practice the truth. And if that is you, God is calling you to repent. To recognize that you are a sinner just like the rest of humanity and that Christ came to live that perfect life that you and I could never live and that he came and he died and he suffered And he made an atonement for sin and then he rose again triumphantly through the power of his resurrection and that your life becomes his now if you turn in repentance and you believe in him and you embrace him as Lord of your life. And then ultimately you'll be delivered from the wrath to come. And when that happens, God begins to dwell in you through the, power, through, through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit so that you can give evidence that you fear in Him by the fruit of the Spirit of God. Job was a man who demonstrated harmony in his life between his profession and his practice. He feared the Lord and that was evidenced by constantly turning from sin. So aware of his sin because he must have been so acquainted with the holiness of God. But if you would consider and look at this a little more closely, you'll notice that he is such a 
an uncommon gem. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, we spoke earlier about his success and his riches, the greatest man on the earth, and yet he's also considered to be the godliest men on the earth. And that, dear ones, is, is actually really hard and rare to be that rich and that godly. There's a story in, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 18 of a rich man who approached Jesus and, and he asked him this question and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus, he, he's wanting him to see his own sinfulness and he would eventually say to him, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have riches in the kingdom. And, and he wasn't happy with that response. He he walked away discouraged. Why? Because he loved his money. He loved riches. And then do you remember what Jesus said? He said, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom. And then he goes on to say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. It's not impossible because all things are possible with God, but it's hard. And Jesus is actually saying that the kind of life that Job is living, hard to believe, but it's hard. And the reason why is because when people can live their life on this earth being so self-sufficient, it becomes such a huge distraction to find their sufficiency outside of themselves and in Christ. But here we have an example of a man who had at his disposal every conceivable earthly treasure, and yet he can look at them each straight in the face and say, I would choose my God over you every single time. Every time. That's not easy. In fact, the extent of his riches actually gives us a clear window into the extent of his godliness. Because the allurement of this life was not successful in, in his life. It did not detract him from his pursuit of God. Nothing came close. And the result of this kind of life is that he seems so well prepared to suffer affliction, loss, and tragedy because his only priority was a holy and humble fear in God. I've been really enjoying a song recently that's been taken from Psalm 84. And one of... The verses, I think, captures where Job is at right now. It says, one of the verses says this, If all this world was for the taking, and every treasure known was mine, not one of them would ever sway me. I choose my Savior every time. Every time. Job lived a worshipful life, so it is in his most trying moments, it is no surprise that we still find him worshiping. If we're going to endure well in the midst of trials, we need to be humbled by the holiness of God. But secondly, we need to be submitting to the sovereignty of God. Look with me at verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
But there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not, a, have you not put a hedge around him and, and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. I think any time there's a dialogue between God and Satan, it's extremely fascinating, but it's also very revealing. And it only happens a few times in the Bible, and among those would be Genesis 3 during the fall. It happens in the, in the gospel accounts when Jesus is tempted by Satan in, in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Job. And it always <clears throat> reveals the wickedness of the devil being contrasted with the character and person and nature and heart of God. And in our passage, a conversation begins as Satan comes along with the sons of God and known as, known as the angels. And his motive for coming is made pretty clear after God asks him this question from where have you come? And God is obviously fully aware of all things and he doesn't ask the question for the purpose of inquiring. He's he's initiating. He's initiating his plan. He always has a plan. And the answer that Satan gives seems to be very vague and he says that he's walking around the earth watching everything that's going on But we need to understand that he's not just mildly roaming the earth. He's violently looking to destroy the faith of those who walk the earth. Peter describes it like this in his epistle when he says that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is not a mild stroll. He is a vicious, proud, yet deceitful enemy. And God, who knows all that, brings forth his greatest jewel on the earth. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? Have you tried him? Have you put him to the test? There's none like him on the earth. And he goes on to describe him the exact same way as verse 1. And he says that he's blameless and upright, who fears God and, and turns away from evil. Have you noticed him? And let me tell you something. Satan knew Job very well. He, he's watched his life very closely and he's probably made multiple attempts at getting to him because he says, you've put a wall of protection around him. You've made him prosperous and successful in everything he does, whether it's in his home or his land. And get this, that's the reason why he fears you. He doesn't fear you for nothing. He fears you because of what he can get out of you. He's godly and he worships you because you are good to him. You give him wealth, health, and happiness. Satan believed and was convinced that the real motivation for true godliness was riches in return. And you might be thinking, man, that sounds very familiar today. That sounds like the prosperity gospel. And it is. And Satan not only adheres to it, he's actually what? He's the originator. He's the author of it. He's perfected it. 
And I know that we would rightly condemn this, this belief and this thinking, but I'm also afraid that there's, there's a flavor of prosperity that creeps up among Christians today in a variety of ways, but we would never call it prosperity. We would never dare say that. And it shows up in our, in our discontentment and, and our tendencies toward covetousness and, and, and envy and And we say things like, God, I've been following you a lot of years, but I still don't have what they have. Even those who despise your name have things that I don't. What's up with that? And we treat God as if we're entitled to some kind of earthly blessing and we're we're doing him a favor for following him. And maybe we don't say it exactly like that, but so often those, those thoughts slip into our minds. Maybe for some of us, it's God, I've, I've recently become a Christian, but I'm still dealing with this financial burden. I'm still dealing with this, this health crisis, or I'm still dealing with the problem in a relationship. We might not realize it in the moment, but what we're saying is, God, you're not enough. You're not enough to me. You're not enough to make me happy. We've heard this so many times before, and I'm sure from here, but we need to start believing and living that Jesus plus nothing equals what? Everything. And his infinite worth and goodness is wrapped up not in the things that he gives me, but in who he is. So the question is, do you fear God for nothing? Let's flip this This question back on us, do we fear God for nothing or is there something that you think that you need or that you want that is going to satisfy you apart from Christ? Satan wants you to believe that. That God might be good, as he says to God here, you've made him prosperous. He, He wants us to believe that he's good but just not good enough. And so he allures us with other things. But if we are to be submitting to God's sovereignty, that requires us to trust in his provision. Trust in his provision for our lives entirely. Jesus says that your Father in heaven knows what you need. And so if he knows what we need and we, knows, and he, and we know that he is good, should we then not trust him to make sufficient provision for us? That's part of what it means to believe that God is sovereign. You know, it's, it's really one thing just, just to give it lip service, and we can proclaim it from the mountaintops like God is, is sovereign. But let me ask you this question. Do we live our life with a confident, peaceful trust that he will provide for us? That determines if we actually believe that he is sovereign. This unwavering trust in him. Satan does everything he can to destroy the faith of God's people, and he makes every effort to do so. But notice he can't help but affirm that God is sovereign in verse 11, as he says, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. Touch his life. Smite it. In other words, I don't have the power to do that without your permission, because if I did, I would have done that a long time ago. But you do. Which is what God says in verse 12 when he says, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. 
I will give you permission to do things to him within the boundaries that I've set for you. God had set a boundary which Satan must operate within, and he can't go anywhere beyond that. I'm sure many of you own a dog, and you know what it's like to put a leash on them, and you take them for a walk, and sometimes you extend that leash, and other times you shorten up that leash, and you determine where they go and where they don't go. It's been well said that Satan might be a roaring lion, but he's a lion on a leash. And he can only go places that God permits him to go. And yet what is remarkable about Job is that he was not privy to this conversation. And so he didn't know just how long that leash was. And he didn't know that it would stop just before his life. And yet we are given every indication that throughout this entire trial, he not only submitted to God's, he submitted to God's sovereignty and not only submitted to trusting God's provision, but also his plan. He trusted God's plan throughout it. Completely unaware of what was about to happen, how long this was going to last, and yet there was this calm and steady trust in the sovereign plan of God. There was real comfort there. It was Spurgeon who said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. We may not see what lies ahead and can often look back and see God's providential work in our lives, but what about in the moment, in the trial itself? Are we able to peacefully rest because we trust in the one who controls all that happens and that no one, not even Satan himself, can frustrate his plan? It was right before Jesus' crucifixion that he approaches Peter and he says, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. He he wants to destroy your faith. He, He wants to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And then do you remember what he told him after? He said, and if you turn back? No, he said, and when you turn back. When you turn back. Jesus determined the success of Peter's trial because he is sovereign over Satan. There is no person that can move and no circumstance that can happen apart from God's plan. All things are working according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1. How ironic that the final words of God's enemy in verse 11 concerning a curse is now held in direct contrast to the final words of God's servant in verse 21 in terms of a blessing upon God. In the midst of the pain and suffering and turmoil, Job cries out and lifts his voice and blesses the name of the, God, of, of the Lord, being reminded not only of God's provision and plan, but really thirdly, of the very person and nature and character of God. That's what undergirded everything. Job can trust God, not because of what he can see around him, but by faith, what he knows about God, what is true about him, and that he is most worthy of my worship in whatever circumstance I find myself in, because circumstances may change, but God never changes. 
in riches or in poverty, in life or even in the very face of death, he is to be worshipped with the practice of our living and the fruit of our lips. May we be committed to this task of enduring well as we humble and submit ourselves to the holy and sovereign God who is most worthy of all of our praise and worship.